coming up this week on Breaking Badness. Today we discuss not your neurotypical episode. We're talking about neurodivergence in InfoSec with Ian Campbell and Travis Hall. And then we are going to play our fun game, Gold Guidance and Grievances. With that, Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness, episode number 154, recorded on April 6th, 2023. I'm your co-host, Callie, not the Linux Fencil. With me is co-host Ian, too neurospicy for primetime Campbell. And last but not least, our newest co-host, Travis, A-U-D-H-D, and D-M Hall. Welcome, everybody. Hello, hello. Travis, great to finally uh, get you on here. Yeah, yeah, you've been trying for a little bit. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, welcome, Travis. Um, you know, maybe just real quickly um, for folks that, uh, you know, don't know you, can you give us just like a little intro of, you know, who you are and what you do at Domain Tools? Yeah, I am uh, the uh, principal systems engineer for technical operations uh, services team. And so, I am the escalation point for pretty much everything that happens between the operating system and the customer for uh, keeping things running here. So it's a big job. Excellent. Well, it's great to, to have you here today with us and, and you know, congrats on your first podcast episode. I hope it's the first of many in the future. So maybe um, just so you know, we can you know, lay the foundation of you know, this episode, um, Travis and Ian, um, neurodivergence, you know, it's a topic that, that we're seeing more and more, uh, you know, in the news, on social media. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your identification as being neurodivergent for our audience? So I'm diagnosed autistic as well as uh, having diagnoses for depression and anxiety. Um, I'm also diagnosed autistic as well as uh, ADHD, um, anxiety, clinical depression, and PTSD. So uh, kind of a, a soup there. My name is kind of a reference to that, that lots and lots of letters follow the name. Gotcha. Okay. And then maybe um, just to back it up even further than that, um, Ian, um, what I guess, what is neurodiversity for, for those that, you know, might be unfamiliar with the term? So neurodiversity is the concept that different people perceive, experience, and operate in the world around them in different ways, coming from different foundations. It recognizes that there's no one single right way to operate or perceive, and that differences aren't necessarily deficits or dis uh, disabilities. Um, there's a lot of opinions and it's an ongoing debate as to who really fits under the neurodiverse umbrella. I and uh, most of the community folks I know try to operate under the most inclusive umbrella possible because frankly, the, the more voices that are involved in the conversation, the better the outcome will be. Gotcha. Excellent. So um, can both of you share your stories on, you know, when you were you know, when you either realized you were not neurodivergent or, you know, any, you know, diagnoses, because I think, um, uh, Ian, you had shared with me before, you don't have to be formally diagnosed to, con you know, to identify as neurodivergent, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think uh, at, at its root, we have to reflect on the fact that neurodiverse people can often have poor relationships with the medical establishment. And that leads to problems with diagnoses, that leads to mistrust and, frankly, avoidance. So um, from the foundation that I come from, which isn't, uh, you know, I'm not speaking for everybody. No one can speak for all autistics or all neurodivergent people or anything like that. But the foundation that I personally come from is that if you identify as neurodivergent, then you're neurodivergent. Um, I... Uh, was diagnosed uh, as a child with uh, depression and uh, anxiety. So I've dealt with that for a long time. My autism diagnosis didn't come till I was uh, about 40. 
I'm an adult diagnosed. And um, in hindsight, it makes a lot of sense. But it, it the path was so interesting, partially because uh, uh, I've got one parent that's a, a career public school educator and another parent who's a psychologist. And they were both surprised by it, too. And so I think it, it speaks to the blind spots that we can all have, because I had the same blind spot. Um, I sought diagnosis after I realized that I was having outsized and um, sort of overdramatic reactions to sensory stimuli. Um, in in particular, it was right at the beginning of the pandemic, and you know I, uh, there were a lot of other things going on and a lot of other feelings wrapped up in that. But um, my neighbor, who backed up right to my balcony or whose property backed up there, um, as a pandemic hobby, took up chainsaw wood sculpting. I don't know if you know any chainsaw chainsaw wood sculptors. It's a very loud and jarring <laughs> hobby. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually happy that you don't. Um, this was a packed uh, Silicon Valley neighborhood, and this guy was just uh, carving his heart out um, on uh, tree stumps with a chainsaw about 20 feet from my apartment that I was stuck in because it's a pandemic. Um, and I was having some serious uh, both uh, – psychological and physical reactions to that stimuli. And I had some basic understanding of autism uh, previously. And it involves uh, one of the things that goes unseen a lot of times is that um, autism and other forms of neurodivergence involve a lot of sensory uh, processing and stimuli processing um, dysfunction or overfunction. So I looked at that, you know, I sat down and looked at it and went, you know, why am I reacting like this? And the light bulb didn't fully click on, but it just started glowing a little brighter as I looked into more things and finally um, started uh, writing down my symptoms, started uh, exploring the whole thing, and then finally started uh, seeking a possible diagnosis. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, what, what about you, Travis? What was, what was your path to finding, you know, your, your realization or your, or your diagnosis that, that you had what you called the, the, the soup of, uh, diagnoses? Yeah. So, um, I always knew that I thought a little bit different. And when I talked to my doctor as a kid, I tried to explain to him that I felt like I didn't think like everybody else, that I felt more like I was a computer in my head, that I I took in things, I processed them, and then I made a decision before putting them back out. And um, he didn't really know what to do with that, honestly. Um, so he just kind of diagnosed me ADHD and went on with life. Um, I didn't uh, do well with ADHD medication that they tried putting me on as a kid. Um, and so I ended up just uh, figuring out how to deal with it in my own way, which ended up being really bad. And then I kind of went through a couple of life events in my mid twenties and decided that I needed to completely uh, reinvent my persona. So I spent like four months at my mom's house doing nothing but going home and going to work and figuring out how you're supposed to interact. And that involved a lot of reading online and a lot of uh, watching TV. And apparently that's not a normal thing. Um, so, uh, after I had my first child, um, he had some problems with schooling and things like that. We ended up taking him to get diagnosed. And it was actually his psychologist that diagnosed me autistic because uh, it was while we were sitting there and we were talking, he was also diagnosed autistic. I kept uh, relating with the things that he was going through and explaining how I had dealt with these things in my life and, and how he could apply those to his life. And so one day his psychologist was uh, talking to him about what autism was and everything else. And to me, it was like, of course, you understand all of this being autistic yourself. And I was like, wait, what? Um, and so I started seeing a psychologist as well, went through the formal diagnosis process. And that's where um, the actual diagnosis happened. But uh, basically having sat in a room once a week, twice a week with a psychologist for um, an hour at a time uh, apparently leads to a pretty confident diagnosis of autism if uh, 
if that's a thing that that fits. That's really interesting. Um, I and I guess like just as a follow up, and I these aren't on my outline questions. It's just like as we're talking, I'm I'm getting more and more thoughts of like what what I wanted to ask both of you. But you know, I guess you know, and this is for both of you. Like, do you feel? like the medical community has improved at all since, you know, childhood where, you know, Travis, you say they, you know, just diagnosed you ADHD, kind of like patted themselves on the back and moved on. Um, Like, do you feel like, you know, there's more understanding of what's going on and, you know, with, you know, neurodivergence or is it kind of the same or, you know, just any, any feelings of, of positive movement? So it, to me, um, is kind of both directions. I found that a lot of the, and, and this is going to seem a little bit ageist, the younger people who have more recently gone to school, who are more familiar with, uh, the DSMV and, and the newer, um, generations of diagnosis, uh, seem to be more accepting. Now, that said, the, uh, psychologist that originally diagnosed me had like 35 years in the field. Um, and so, um, there are definitely examples, but, uh, in, in a lot of directions here, but I feel like, um, the medical field is becoming generally speaking more accepting of it as it becomes understood how much more common this is than people originally thought. As we begin to understand that some of these conditions may not be separate conditions, but may be symptoms of the same underlying conditions that we recognize differently because it's hard to understand that a uh, rainbow is a spectrum of different colors when uh, you only have a few different names for the colors that are in a rainbow. So I think that's kind of where we're at with this. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll echo Travis there. Um, uh, I think um we are definitely closer to a, a more holistic understanding of um, neurodivergence. I don't think we're there yet. I think we're at a sort of interstitial point. But um, there's also the question of, does the evolution in the medical community improve outcomes? And that's kind of a toss-up. I think that there are uh, some effect. From what I understand, there are some more effective interventions for kids at this point. Um, I don't have any kids, so I can't really speak to that. Travis might be able to. But um, I think for adults, it's a toss-up because you understand yourself more and you can understand your responses and reactions a little more. But there isn't a whole heck of a lot for adult diagnosed uh, autistics in particular uh, as far as benefits therapy intervention go. One of the other questions I had that as that popped up like as we're talking is um, – you know, when, when you talk about, you know, my mind is, you know, feels like it operates like a computer. Or I feel like I think differently. Um, does that necessarily mean if somebody's listening to this and they're trying to armchair diagnose themselves, um, like are the classic symptoms of, or I don't know if you'd call it a symptom, are the classic, you know, signifiers of, you know, having autism or ADHD, like, you know, it, like for me, I'm not diagnosed autistic, but I don't generally like making eye contact with people. I think it's odd. Um, so do you think like what would you say to people that, you know, feel like they have some of these um, signifiers? Like would would you say they should identify as neurodivergent or what would you say to those folks? I think I'd say that the whole process is a continuing journey. The diagnosis isn't necessarily a destination, no less a final destination. I think it's always worth looking inward and learning about yourself and your responses and learning from that and even learning to um, control that and control your behavior a little more. I think there are definite benefits to that. I definitely encourage people to... um, explore themselves and what they're going through a lot more. 
I think uh, for me and my experience, and uh, I think this is reflected in some of the literature, not all of the literature, but it's reflected in some of it. Um, a, A lot of it, uh, a lot of our lived experience comes back to that um, sensory processing. And I think uh, it's that's one of the places to start. If you feel like you process uh, sensory stimuli different than other people, that's one of the places to start and to start interrogating that and sit with it and uh, really try and interrogate the roots of it. Um, one of the things I, I do a lot is uh, meditation and I always advocate for it. And it's one of those ways that allows me to sit and really go through what I'm feeling or what I'm experiencing and pick it apart and understand it better. And that also lends to um, uh, later when I'm just operating in, in real life, um, identifying that stuff coming up naturally and being able to um, – sort of see it and go, oh, that's happening again. I'm feeling that again. How should I respond? How do I want to respond? And then sort of going from there. So I think people, you know, I I always encourage people to learn about themselves more and things like that. Um, As far as uh, what they're experiencing and if they're experiencing things, really your best bet is to seek out community with other uh, people. Um, Find the others, and start talking with them and talking with your friends and uh, all of that about uh, your experiences. Uh, to, to kind of second what Ian is saying, uh, talking to you, to your friends, being open with each other. If, if you don't feel comfortable opening up to your friends, like it comes around to the question of, are they actually your friends? Like you should be able to be comfortable and be a little more yourself. Now, a lot of us learn very, very young to kind of hide who we are. And, and, and that's called masking. It's, it's a trait and a feature that, um, everybody kind of, you feel like everybody does it, but come to find out most neurotypical people don't actually have to learn how to mask, which is mind blowing to somebody who had to do it their entire life. And where I talked about how I remade myself in my mid twenties, I realized that the masks that I had built as a child were not going to work for me in my adult life. And I had to effectively rebuild a whole new masking algorithm uh, for myself as an adult to become a successful professional. Um, but one thing that I've learned since then is that by analyzing how you feel about things and like actually writing it down, keeping notes of how you feel, like Ian said, about sensory inputs or how you feel about situations and how you're reacting to situations and how much energy that is taking out of you to do it. You can be, you can begin to learn uh, what masks you put on, what traits are actually masking. And then you can, intentionally stop doing those at times where you feel safe, where you're at home and you can kind of let that mask drop a little bit around people who you trust and about, or, and around yourself and um, begin to relax and get some of that energy back in your life. And so that's one of the important things to, to realize about recognizing your neurodiversity and recognizing the masking and the things that you built up around yourself is that, um, Yes, you may have to do these things in order to become successful or to be around certain types of people or to be around family or to be around, um, you know, uh, professionals and and conferences and groups of people or grocery shopping, right? But if you recognize that you're doing these things intentionally, even subconsciously, you can stop doing them when you don't have to and regain some of that energy and also get a better idea of who you actually are. And I think that that is honestly a more important part of the process for me than the actual diagnosis was. The diagnosis gave me the tools to understand what people commonly looked at. So I, I learned to where to look in my life for the changes that I was making and, and the extra steps that I was taking. Um, but honestly, being able to look at the changes that I had made, the masks that I had built and where I was applying it in my life, has allowed me to relieve a lot of that stress at home. And honestly, it has allowed me to associate better with my children with their neurodivergencies. That's great, Travis. I'm really glad 
to hear that. Um, as both of you have been, you know, on your, you know, respective journeys, um, you know, with neurodivergence, um, are there any myths that you would like to debunk here on the podcast for listeners? So, um, I think one of the big myths that I want to push back against is the idea that, um, neurodiversity only comes with deficits. Um, I think what looks like maladaptive behavior a lot of times is a response to overwhelming sensory input, whether it's uh, input uh, externally, so your your environment, or input internally, uh, where you're overthinking and, um, you know, your, your brain is cycling and things like that. The what looks like that maladaptive behavior is a response to that overwhelming sensory input, but the only thing that's noticed is the outer behavior. So I think um, uh, focusing on some of that uh, inner behavior and realizing that once you can find some agency in it, um, like Travis said, for instance, uh, realizing that you don't have to mask all the time and that you can actually choose when to mask and that you have power and authority over that. Um, what you can do is take control of the ways that you think and operate differently. And it, it doesn't have to be deficits and it doesn't have to be disabling, but you can actually use it and wrangle it into um, some uh, superpowers. I think for me, uh, one of the things that I would like to recognize is that um, that not everybody feels the same way. So uh, it, it, I don't know that I would necessarily call it a myth, but everybody seems to think that everybody experiences the same thing. And, you know, uh, it, it's, it's very common in our verbiage. Well, that would make me really mad if that were to happen, et cetera. You know, um, for myself, I typically experience emotion either more as good or more as bad. And it's really hard for me to define between different bad feelings. And so if somebody does something to me um, that's that's negative, um, my default expression against that is anger. Uh, so where it might make another person sad or cry uh, that they're doing a thing, or that it might make them uh, withdraw or feel hurt about things, uh, my default is to get mad. And knowing that about myself allows me to kind of step back and process it. But understanding that people experience emotion differently will also allow you to give space and give understanding to people who are potentially neurodivergent um, if they don't react to news the way that you expect them to. So if somebody gets mad about the loss of a parent or if somebody gets, you know, um, uh, gets sad because somebody around them, you know, was taken advantage of instead of getting angry about it or something like that, they may have difficulty uh, defining between uh, the, the emotions that everybody else kind of takes for granted. I think uh, there's another one that I want to sort of wrap around to because it directly bears on why the three of us are here today, which is um, the idea that neurodiverse people are somehow less stable or uh, less capable or less trustworthy. Um, we're all in cybersecurity. We're in different positions. Um, but there's, of course the question as to how public we can be, how frank we can be about our internal lives and still be trusted in important positions and with important information. Um, recently, the Rand Corporation, of all places, came out with a fantastic report, like a 60-page report on neurodiversity in the national security sphere. Um, uh, has some great points and great findings that they built up after a bunch of literature review that informed a bunch of interviews that they did. And then they came back around and wrote everything up. And uh, one of uh, one of the takeaways is that uh, there's unsurprisingly a lot of neurodiversity in the national security sphere. And I think uh, some of that we can um, 
uh, swap out national security and cybersecurity for our purpose here today. Um, they, the, the report itself talks about the uh, benefits of neurodiverse employees, um, but it also talks about barriers to hiring and barriers to their careers. Now, the, the thing to take away, uh, one, of the, one of the really important points in that report, one of my favorite parts, um, uh, understandably, is during one of their interviews, they were talking to uh, uh, defense uh, managers. They said, and this particular manager said, um, I, uh, you know, we specifically established a, a neurodiversity program to bring candidates in because our missions are too important and too difficult to be left to those who only use their brains in typical ways. And I think that translates to cybersecurity as well. Um, I think there are a lot of um, myths and misconceptions about uh, behavior. And as soon as your behavior deviates from the norm, there's a question of whether you can be trusted or not. But there are people deep in our national security apparatus that are trusted every day with keeping us safe. And there are obviously a lot of people in cybersecurity under uh, the neurodiverse spectrum. But it, it, just seeing that sentence that the missions are too important and too difficult to be left to those who only use their brains in typical ways is fantastic because it, it really highlights some of the strengths that neurodiverse people can bring to security missions. That is the best sentence I think I've ever heard. Um, it's it's elegant and, and it's really beautiful in, in a way like like what a what a fantastic way to celebrate people with, you know, that have those, you know, different abilities that, you know, like we had both talked about, like they're not, um, they don't only come with deficits. And we'll talk about that. I have a question about that a little bit later on. Um, I really like that, that they're celebrating um, folks with neurodiversity in that way. Um, and we had touched on, you know, what, how does this, you know, uh, intersect with cybersecurity. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit more, but, you know, just in general in the workplace too, um, what's, what's your experience been, you know, being in the workplace, you know, with, you know, you know, having neurodiversity, like, has it been improving? Um, you know, have, have you always felt like you've had to mask in, in the workplace or do you feel it's, it's something where, where you're, you're free to be yourself? So I'll say that that really honestly depends on your direct supervisor. More than anything else, it really comes down to your boss. So early in my career, before I remade my masks, um, I was let go from my second contracted position um, because uh, in their words, if they had a position where I didn't have to interact with anybody, I would have been great to keep around but they just couldn't afford somebody like that. And that hurt. <laughs> I will, I will, I will be frank about that. That was, <laughs> I can imagine yeah. that would hurt. And, and then, you know, my next That's job, rough. I got uh, passed over for a promotion that I was honestly the best qualified for. And so I talked to the person there um, that had gotten promoted over me and basically straight up asked them why. And that right there tells you that I'm neurodiverse because who else is going to walk up to somebody and be like, dude, I deserve that promotion more than you. Why did you get it? Right? Like that's, that is not a normal behavior, but it's me. So. <laughs> but, but I like it. I, I'm, I'm fine so, with it. <laughs> so uh, to his credit, he took me under his wing and he explained to me like basically the way that you have to interact in the IT industry in order to actually be able to get ahead. And that blended forward into the cybersecurity industry. And it has been a very important asset to me. It's why I took and remade my masks so that I could fit into the glove that I was expected to fit into. Um, and that did me really well until my current position with my current manager who um, took some of the things that I did abnormally and celebrated them instead of discouraging them and encouraged me to explore my weird ideas and and whatnot we actually have a term for it now where it's you know 
I, I tell him I have a bad idea. And the understanding is, is that the idea may not actually be a bad idea, but I, I bring it forward in that way so that it can be openly challenged uh, and you can you can come to terms with uh, where we're trying to go. Um, and, and the fact that I have plan, you know, F through plan R uh, already decided often gives us the opportunity to explore and find a plan B or C that we can head forward with. Um, and so that celebration of, of the neurodiversity, that celebration of uh, seeing things differently has really allowed me to excel here. And where I've never been at a job for more than three years before, I've been here nine years and five days now. Um, and this has been the, frankly, the best job of my life. And it's because of my direct supervisor. That's amazing. You're, you've been here for nine years. That's a fourth grader. <laughs> um, I think I, uh, I echo uh, unsurprisingly a lot of Travis's sentiments here. I also think it has to do with the environment. Um, but um, very much whether you're able and capable and willing to um, manipulate your masks yourself and uh, adapt to the environment because a lot of environments aren't going to adapt to you. Um, previous to Silicon Valley, I was um, uh, I worked in Congress. I worked IT, um, literally pounding the the pavement, going from office to office, fixing stuff. And that's one of those places where I had to mask harder than I ever did before, because otherwise, uh, uh, client offices weren't going to be uh, particularly happy with me. The things would be a little awkward. But masking and choosing to mask allowed me to thrive in some of those business relationships. Now, um, fast forward uh, to uh, when I got hired on at Farsight Security, which Domain Tools uh, later acquired. Now, uh, the thing uh, probably to know is that Travis and I have been friends for uh, 15, maybe 20 years now. And uh, Travis got me hired on. Um, uh, he had, uh, when he started working, started talking about this awesome job he had with this, um, uh, awesome far out guy named, uh, Paul Vixie. And, uh, so I started, uh, following, um, Vixie's exploits and started getting more interested in working on my skills. And it took us a couple of years for me to get to the point where I was actually, um, where I would actually be useful to the organization, but then they brought me on and I had the benefit of having the same manager that, uh, Travis does, um, uh, in this case, uh, Peter Popovich. And uh, Peter recognized my neurodivergence, but he didn't recognize it as a deficit. He recognized that I had some rough edges, but he also recognized that I was able to um, uh, look at the systems and look at the people and look at what needed to be done and do things in ways that most people couldn't or wouldn't. So he, uh, again, helped uh, mold me and my skills and my interactions so that um, the the environment, uh, once I got to Farsight, was completely different from Congress. And I felt a whole lot more confident to just be me and put things out there. Um, and uh, since then, I've, I've uh, since the uh, acquisition and then the reorganization, I now work for Daniel Schwalbe, who I had experience with uh, at Farsight because he was the uh, VP of engineering. He's now the uh, for Domain Tools, the VP of IT and the CISO. And um, Daniel is uh, very much the same way in terms of encouraging me to think outside the box and encouraging me to use those um, unique skills and unique perspective that I approach from in order to get things done in completely different ways. That's fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm glad that both of you, you know, feel so at home at Domain Tools. That's great to hear. Um, just to kind of expand on, you know, how this is a cybersecurity topic. What I wanted to ask as we're as we're talking, you know, it's it's great that, you know, that one sentence Ian that you mentioned, it's, you know, it's too important to only, you know, consider 
you know, like the typical thought process. But then what do we do about the problem that there's, you know, still thousands of vacant positions in cybersecurity? Like, is, you know, is that something that needs to be addressed to, you know, reach out more to, you know, neurodivergent folks? Are there are there barriers in the hiring process that need to be addressed? So my perception is that the um, neurodiversity in the workforce in general and in cybersecurity in particular really became a, a topic that interested the industry once the pandemic started and once work from home became a thing. And that goes back to the previous question, too, about um, accommodating environments. Work from home is a huge benefit to someone who processes sensory stimuli differently or who um, needs a, a certain environment in which to thrive or needs the ability to step away and recharge privately and in private ways before they re-engage. So I think um, uh, working from home, which we're seeing a pushback on now, of course, um, became a huge positive and a huge uh, um, uh, credit to bringing neurodiverse people uh, either back into the um, cybersecurity or deeper into cybersecurity. So it, it's unfortunate to see some of that getting a rollback elsewhere uh, these days. But I think um, stuff like work from home and flexible schedules and um, some other uh, things along those lines allow people with, you know, that, that think complete uh, along different ways to provide more of their benefit and be more of themselves while allowing their skills and their hyper focuses and everything to uh, to assist in the workplace more. I agree with Ian on that. The, the ability to work from home allows me to finish the thought that I'm having um, before moving on to, you know, responding to somebody or something along those lines. Whereas like if somebody walks up to your desk, like whatever it is that I was doing is gone now. Um, so, uh, the work from home environment was, uh, was a huge boon to my success. And I've been doing it for over a decade now where I've been working from home and, and it's been, uh, really great. Um, I will say that, uh, one of the other things that, uh, that we could do to change the barrier to entry is to consider alternate, um, experience a little bit more. Uh, one of the things that has um, people who are neurodivergent often find difficulty with the traditional educational environment. Um, and so requiring a bachelor's or a master's degree or something like that uh, can often be a really big barrier to entry. Um, so con uh, considering experience in lieu of that or um you know, uh, considering uh, volunteer time for organizations and considering skill sets over um, over certifications, considering um, time spent and capability over necessarily experience in a professional work environment, things like that might enable us to reach out to more neurodiverse people and help people get started in the industry. And as a second note, um, everybody, uh, it, it's, it's a recognized meme on the internet that entry level positions now need five years of experience in just about every field. And I would like to point out that's not entry level. So, um, uh, and, and I feel like what that, that, challenges people who are neurodiverse because a lot of us take things far more literally than our uh, neurotypical uh, compatriots. So one of our neurotypical compatriots may look at that and say five years of experience. Well, I obviously don't have five years of experience, but I'll go ahead and send my resume anyway. Um, and then they get the position, whereas somebody who is neurodiverse is like, well, that's a hard requirement. It's under required, not wanted. So I can't bother applying. I'm not going to waste anybody's time here. Um, so I will tell 
people, uh, even if you don't feel like you meet the requirements, if you feel like a job would be a good fit for you, go ahead and send in your resume. And to hiring managers, please consider alternate experience um, and alternate methods of thinking uh, when considering your candidates. Thanks, Travis. Um, let's pivot a little bit to talking about, um, you know, not not necessarily like uh, getting into cybersecurity. So you've already entered the the field. Um, let's talk about um, employee resource groups. So, um, Ian, you you have written a blog about this before, and we will share that again in the show notes. But for those that are unfamiliar, what is the idea behind a neurodivergent employee resource group? Yeah, so the the ERG has been great. Um, the the basic idea of an employee resource group is to create a space for people with something in common and their allies to come together and feel supported. Um, it's not to validate or solve a specific problem. And there are also times that uh, the employee resource group can say, okay, we just want people who identify as X uh, in the meeting so that we can um, talk uh, clearly and privately among each other. So it's really about affinity and um, creating bridges between each other and with allies. Um, so we, we've had uh, probably uh, half a dozen or more meetings so far. A lot of uh, what we've talked about is our experience in the workplace and what we've experienced personally, uh, both at Domain Tools and before, um, and uh, uh, especially how things can change. Um, we're not looking to solve a, a particular problem, but I think that naturally comes up in that when we talk about what we experienced, we also end up talking about what we'd like to see and also what we'd like people to know. Uh, I think one of the best, uh, one of my favorite meetings so far has been us talking, uh, the neurodivergent ERG talking, uh, specifically about what we'd like people to know um, or understand about our, our particular flavor of neurodiversity or uh, general experience. And that was just a, a really heartfelt meeting, I think, where we got to um, uh, express what we'd like to see in the greater world and what we'd like people to see in us. So it was this really dialectic process that uh, was just a really neat conversation. And Travis, you, um, one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on the podcast is you're a pretty vocal member in the ERG um, can, like, what, what has that been like for you? Has it been a beneficial resource? Um, like, would you like to see other companies, you know, try to, you know, employ that you know, group as well? Yeah, it absolutely has been a great resource here. Uh, recognizing that you're not alone, um, being able to converse and share experiences, having your feelings about things or having other people see the same things as you validating that you're not uh, alone in this or that, that you're, um, that there, that there are others like you, um, can be, can be really validating. And I've never had, uh, a neurodiversity ERG before. Um, it wasn't really coming into the, the mindset when I joined domain tools. So it's possible that some of the places I worked before now have uh, environments like this or, or systems like this, but it really has been, um, great to have this uh, group to be able to talk to to let down the walls, um, especially across teams. Like because these are people that I don't interact with necessarily on a daily basis. That now I share a kinship with. I have an understanding with these people. So when we have an all hands meeting, um, I already have somebody that I can recognize that I can go and be a little bit myself, let down the mask a little bit around these people, and relax and recharge with them. Um, in a way that might benefit us both when both of us are feeling a bit overwhelmed by the crowd, um, as it were. So it really has been a, a valuable resource. And, and I talk a lot during those groups because frankly, I have a lot of privilege. I am in a very respected position. I have very established uh, credentials here and I'm recognized to be a resource that the company doesn't want to lose. So, um, 
that gives me the opportunity to say things that other people can then feel and understand and and potentially agree with or not i you know i'm not trying to push anything on anybody here but it allows people to recognize things especially things that might be um a little more politically risky to say um like talking about changes that should happen or things like that um or or um yeah uh, just some people are a little more worried about you know uh backlash against their jobs and so being able to be a vocal proponent um allows people to feel less alone in projecting their own opinions as well and that's that's worth highlighting because travis and i are two aging white guys so we're obviously um throughout the whole uh program here throughout the whole process we're speaking from a place of privilege because women and uh people of color and especially women of color uh end up dealing with a lot more um uh downsides to any kind of activity when it comes to uh, the workplace or uh, a lot of other things but especially not getting the basic benefit of the doubt that's often uh extended to Travis and my demographic. So we've always got to be cognizant of that. And the fact that, especially institutionally, um, people who aren't like Travis and I deal with a lot more barriers than we do. Um, uh, I think it's incumbent upon all of us to um, help each other up and uh, really uh, try and uh, not being super eloquent here, but um, uh, to really try and understand not a universal experience, but to understand the universal experiences that people are having and how those can be uh, uh, improved. Um, and uh, as as Travis reminds me, uh, privilege comes with responsibility. So that um, Travis and I can be more vocal about this is true, but we also have the responsibility to be more vocal about this and tr try to push things um, further to make it better for everyone um, as much as we can. Not pull up the ladder behind you, as it were. Absolutely. That is... That is something, again, that's been commonly recognized online is that um, that a lot of places, a lot of ways people have tried to pull up the ladder behind themselves. They feel like their slice of pie will somehow be smaller if other people also get a slice of pie. But we have a really big buffet, guys. Like there, people are going to have pie to take home. Just anybody's hungry, come back to the table and get more pie, please. Like, stop <laughs> with the grabbing. That, that's, that's a great way to put it. I love that analogy. And it we, somehow we get to talk about food on pretty much every episode of the podcast. So we are on brand. Um, maybe uh, my second to last question uh, for you both is, um, yes, you, you both are in, um, you know, you're, you're established in your careers, you're very well respected, uh, and you have fantastic managers. Um, and I guess what I would like to, to hear is, you know, what advice do you have for, for other managers? Like what, what can they do, you know, for, you know, when, for the, during the interview, I guess, uh, not, just the interview process, you know, getting past that, you know, screening process with your resume, through the interviewing, through onboarding, um, for somebody that, you know, just, they just need you to take a chance on them so they can get to the level that, that you both are at. What would you say for those managers? Uh, I would say um, recognize the things that you don't expect. Um, if a person responds in a way that you didn't necessarily expect or a person sees an event in a way that you didn't see take that diversity of insight that diversity of background that diversity of um of thought process 
and utilize it. Think to yourself, okay, well, this person sees this type of thing in this way. This person is always looking for the way that things are going to go wrong. So I'm going to have them work on monitoring because really that's a great place for this person. If they're always looking for the way that everything is going to go wrong, uh, let's, let's have the system notice when things are going to go wrong. Uh, you look at what their strengths are, the way that their brain already works, and you allow them to be more successful in those paths if there is a path for that to work. And you can find that your employees are more successful, more capable, your team as a whole becomes happier. So celebrate those diversities of thought and then recognize where the holes are in your team. So say you don't have or you don't have a, a good documentation person on your team, find somebody who writes as a hobby and help target that during your next hiring position. Find someone who likes to to uh, find the way that things work and understand it and then put those things down on paper. Like look for the things that your team needs and the things that, that make people happy and try to find a way to marry those things together and you'll end up with a better team. I think there's a couple uh, concrete steps that you can also do from the beginning that will uh, make everybody's uh, life easier and make the team better. And the first is clear communications. Um, and this should be with all team members, but especially neurodiverse ones. Be as clear as possible, even in casual communications. Um, don't just send a message like, hey, we need to talk at three. Say, okay, uh, let's talk at three about um, changes we need to do to monitoring. Because otherwise, there's a possibility, especially with stuff like uh, past trauma and past institutional trauma in particular, that when you say Let, uh, we need to talk at three, someone's mind is going to go into overdrive with all the bad thoughts. Um, uh, another step that you can take from the beginning is not requiring uh, someone to use a uh, webcam when they don't feel like it. It's one of the rules that uh, we have in the ERG and have had from the beginning that you don't have to have your webcam on because um, uh, even remote, even working from home, masking visually like that is exhausting. So being uh, uh, clear communications and uh, making sure that people understand they don't have to have their uh, webcam on. The third thing I'd suggest is really, really for managers to um, think twice about stuff like social fit or team fit when they're interviewing, because that's not what you should uh, necessarily be hiring for if you're looking to um, take advantage of uh, neurodiversity. If you end up focusing on that, you're going to lose out on uh, uh really good, uh, some possibly really good candidates because you're focusing too much on, uh, you know, first impressions and especially social impressions in a case where even neurotypical folks are awkward, no less neurodiverse ones. That, that's really good advice, Ian. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, so I want to finish our discussion uh, on a on a happy note. Uh, you know, this has been a really great, meaningful conversation, um, but I want to talk about something fun. Um, what's your favorite thing about being neurodivergent? Is there something that you have found uh, that uh, that you do or that you, you know, are able to do that, you know, neurotypical folks uh, aren't able to do? So for me, um, hyper focus. I consider this to be my superpower because I am so strongly ADHD. There are times where I can't, you know, focus and do what it is that I want to do. But during times of emergency, times where things have gone down, we've uh, the most recent, actually a fun example that involves Ian is uh, the week, I think, after Ian started, we lost a hypervisor. It was um, one month in. Yeah. Okay. About a month. Yeah. A month in. Um, we lost a hypervisor. And what that means is the company came to a standstill. We had lost our email. We lost our chat system. We lost the documentation server. 
um, which meant that the only knowledge we had available to us was institutional. The only way we could talk to each other is if you had their phone numbers already in your phone. You couldn't email, you couldn't message. Um, everything was down. And so what hyperfocus allows me to do is um, basically I just dump adrenaline and, and all of a sudden everything fits in my head. I knew all of the VMs that were on that hypervisor. I knew everything that they did and I was able to, um, while working on bringing up the most critical infrastructure myself, uh, direct other people in how to bring up the other pieces of important infrastructure, uh, the order in which to bring things up so that things would, you know, negotiate successfully, um, how to recover the data for things that needed to be, how to replace the things for the things that were broken, um, and uh, how to communicate that outwards to other people to keep people from panicking and understanding uh, what was done. And for about 18 hours straight, I was in this zone where it was, there wasn't really any eating or drink. It was just managing the emergency until the emergency was over. And it took me about three days afterwards to recover from it. But um, honestly, seeing Ian's reaction to how I had handled that event um, highlighted to me that that it was my superpower because it's something that doesn't happen very often. And it's usually something you don't get a lot of honest feedback from somebody you trust when it does come up. And so it allowed me to see my neurodiversity for the asset that it really actually could be. That sounds like a fantastic asset to have. I am an, I'm kind of jealous after hearing that. And I'm sure I'm going to be jealous after hearing Ian's. I, I love that story. And I knew where you were going as soon as you started talking, because I remember that day like it was yesterday. It was about four years ago. Um, I, I had just started with the company, uh, so I was there a month. So I couldn't really contribute a whole lot. But what I, what I was able to do was sit in the same video bridge with Travis and with a couple other people. And all I did for about 18 hours was take notes and uh, do timestamps and keep everything logged. And uh, being able to focus uh, on that and contribute like that um, also made me feel pretty good despite the absolute chaos. Now, um, in terms of my favorite thing about being neurodivergent, uh, I think it's my ability to um, uh, approach situations and problems from a unique perspective, because it it often seems to me like neurotypical people often come from the same or, or uh, similar foundations. And I end up being able to largely pick and choose. Um, I, I sort of change my approach depending on what I'm approaching. And it ends up a lot more malleable and a lot more flexible. And it, it allows every problem and every situation to be so much more interesting than coming at it from uh, the same social uh, socially accepted uh, foundation. So just having that difference brings a certain um, uh, variety of spices to, to life. That's awesome, Ian. I those are fantastic superpowers. Like really, seriously, I'm impressed. Um, all right. So, so thank you both so much for this great conversation. I'm really excited to share this with people. Um, let's, uh, let's finish out though. Um, what do you say we play some gold guidance and grievances, uh, before we, before we exit? Yeah, absolutely. I'm down. Cool, cool, cool. Ian, uh, do you want to kick things off? All right. For my gold, I'm going to highlight that the uh, SANS uh, cybersecurity uh, organization had their uh, had a uh, neurodiversity in cybersecurity summit on Tuesday. Uh, so uh, things are quite timely. And this wasn't their first one. So it's really nice to see an institutional effort continued Um that brings uh, the idea of neurodiversity and its benefits further into cybersecurity. 
um, for guidance, um, one of the things I've learned, and I actually literally have a post-it note on my computer monitor to remind me every day. The post-it note says, when you're frustrated, step back. I can be very reactive to things. I can um, be a little explosive and a little mercurial sometimes. And what I realize a lot of times is that if I'm frustrated, I'm not going to communicate effectively. And if I'm not communicating effectively, I get even more frustrated. It's that terrible feed, that feedback loop, which um, is common uh, to um, other neurodiverse folks that I've talked to. So just getting more and more frustrated doesn't help any kind of problem or any kind of situation. So when you're frustrated, step back. It's helped me a lot, especially in terms of being a better uh, coworker, being a better colleague, and realizing that if I'm frustrated, I need to take a, t a few breaths before I continue, because uh, you know the other people I'm dealing with don't need to deal with my frustration. Uh, you know, I'm not entitled to, to flex my frustration out on other people. But if I step back, then I can reapproach from the place that I choose, from the, the foundation that I choose, and then everything goes a lot better. And for my grievance, um, I, I touched on it a little, but I'm going to reiterate uh, invitations or conversation opening messages that are just hi, or can we talk, or um, uh, anything like that. And, uh, just those vague things that don't say what you want to talk about, or don't start out with a subject or anything like that. I know it's, it, you know, it, it's, it's considered a little rude, but the thing is, I'm not great at small talk. I'm really bad at it. And we're all busy. And my mind is already going in eight directions at once. I don't want it to go in another eight trying to figure out what uh, someone wants to talk about later. So if you can, if everyone can just be a little more clear with their event invitations, with their meeting invitations, with their conversation opening messages, that would, uh, I think, save us all a lot of time. I will have to talk offline about why we think people do that. I don't like when I get a Slack message that says, hi. And nothing else. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm like, you stop that right now. <laughs> um, Travis, do you wanna do you wanna go and share your gold guidance and grievances? Sure thing. Uh, so for goals for me, I'd like to highlight Mastodon, the new or the uh, the social network that's kind of an open source social network. It was um, something I became a lot more aware of uh, with uh, the Twitter exodus, uh, the InfoSec community. Um, over to Mastodon and seeing the community continue to, con uh, to converse and be so open and welcoming as it moved from one community to another. Not all of it, but, you know, uh, a significant majority of it staying so open and welcoming um, was great. And then, you know, the, the reading communities and things like that, where people uh, talk about uh, basically online book clubs on this and things, it's uh, been a great experience um, talking where your your conversation isn't being monetized. It's been it's been cool. So Mastodon has been great. Do you, Travis? Do you think it's a, a matter of uh, just the algorithm being gone, or do you think it's also um, people sort of sighing with a relief? Being you know we're out of Twitter, we can relax a little and actually focus on uh, on what we love a little more. What do you think it is? I think it's kind of both a little bit. You don't have an out. So a lot of algorithms uh, are driven based on um, uh, based on feedback. So if people are interacting with a post. Um, they get rewarded for that, uh, for making a post that people interact with. And unfortunately, human nature is one such that people react more to things they hate than things they love. Um, and so a lot of algorithmically driven communication methods end up a lot more hateful than average. Um, and that wasn't good for my emotional health personally. Um, so moving to a, a system where 
the algorithm was the users that I chose to follow. And if I didn't like the things that someone was sharing, I could just unfollow them. Um, and, and my feed has become a very happy and supportive place where I don't have to see a lot of anger or rage, except when it's truly deserved by people that I respect. Um, so, you know, it, it really has been uh, a different type of experience. Um, but yeah, a lot less hate uh, that I have to see personally because there isn't an algorithm trying to sell ads by showing me hate. Um, as far as guidance goes, um, I probably should have written it down because now it's gone out of my head. But I guess uh, in in honor of that, my guidance will be uh, making notes to yourself. Uh, if you have something that you intended to talk about, uh, go ahead and make a note of that thing because you can't trust your brain to remember it when it's important. Yeah, you can't. You pivoted perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and and my grievance uh, my grievance today is Samsung. There was a recent uh, cybersecurity exploit where you can run code on people's phone by sending them a specially crafted phone call over data. And Samsung did not patch this during the uh, the private window, and so now I had to turn all of the data phone calls off of my phone in order to keep my phone safe because Samsung didn't patch it in time. So. Uh, my grievance here is to Samsung, please start patching cybersecurity exploits during the disclosure window so that I don't have to go turn things off and try to explain to my wife why I'm digging through settings on her phone. Thank you. Excellent. These are great gold guidance and grievances, uh, both of you. Thank you so much for coming and playing. Um, yeah, well, thank you. This yeah. has been a great conversation. Yeah, I, I enjoyed every minute of it, and I, and I truly mean that. Thank you both so much for, for giving us your time. Um, I really think, you know, you know the, the community is going to really appreciate, you know, your thoughts, you know, and uh, I'm excited to share with everybody. Um, so, yeah, um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, thank you, Travis and Ian, again, you know, uh, really appreciate your time. And I hope to catch you guys next time on Breaking Badness. Have a great day, everybody. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at DomainTools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.